Gentlemen, start your engine! Good afternoon, radio. For those who don't know, Radio Hotler. Thanks for coming and making time. It's on everybody's mind. For those who don't know, there's a big shebang. Sorry about that. Sorry, boy, look at the technical goodies. Radio Hotler. Oh, cheers, boys. Cheers. Cheers. is ready and uh, keep that bottle of wine away at five, four, three, two, one. G'day viewers and welcome to episode 108 of Radio Hot Lap, that light-hearted and zany podcast that takes a look at local and international motor racing, cool emerging technology, gadgets and barbecue. Winter casseroles coming on Oh, winter soon. casseroles. Yes, oh, oh. autumn casseroles. Well, yeah, autumn at the moment. Yes, quite true. And JP, good to see you good here to see with you us, too, John. But those we wow. can't see for the first time, we are actually doing a Skype hookup with uh, none other than Mark Fogarty at uh, uh, Auto Action in uh, Melbourne. Mark, are you there? Good evening, guys. Well, I hope I'm on Skype. Otherwise, I'm really projecting my voice a long, long way. <laughs> <laughs> And I know I've got a big voice, but probably not that big. No, isn't uh, new technology is quite marvellous. Look, next time we might actually uh, be all of us in individual places and uh, then we can all do the show uh, naked. That's right, without even leaving our lounge rooms. Naked DSL, that is. Oh, of course. And um, Radio Nuthouse, isn't that a better name for this show, really? (laughs) That's that's the one you're coming up with next, that you're you're going... (laughs) You've got a couple of V8 supercar drivers that you feel are quirky enough to fit under that umbrella. Oh, yes, there are a couple of those. So how are you anyway? Uh, it's been a good couple of weeks. Had a high old time in Adelaide, of course, with uh, you maniacs, and uh, that pretty much decided that by the time I got to Melbourne, I was already wrecked before the Grand Prix, but we managed to get through that, and uh, that was a pretty interesting meeting all over, and now we're just sitting and waiting for... Easter, and then, of course, the V8s over in Hamilton, New Zealand next weekend, which, uh, if there's uh, any justice, I'm not going to have to go to. <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's review over a glass of something uh, relaxing. Uh, are you um, partaking in a little uh, Coopers, perhaps, or something, uh, something more um, um, Victorian? I'd love to be imbibing, but at the moment I'm being sensible and I'm just uh, nursing a cup of coffee here, but I'm sure if we have a little break or I get a chance, I'll slip away and uh, pour myself uh, a tipple, shall we say. Would that be a a beer-oriented tipple, folks, or a a wine-oriented tipple? That would be wine, JP, yes. (laughs) A tipple has to be wine or a spirit, I think. I don't think a tipple can be beer. You don't. No. Tipples could okay. be possibly used over the breakfast of champions. Oh, definitely. What's well, breakfast of champions? Yeah, <laughs> well, yes. Would I, would I be familiar with that? <laughs> no, you wouldn't, but you'd love it if you were here. Because we usually do the big bacon and eggs and um, sausages and all that sort of stuff, tomatoes, mushrooms, and the sparkling red burgundy. It's the only way to start the day. That's a houseboat trip. No, he is on the breakfast. I think we're talking about different breakfasts of champions. We're talking about 
There are two variations that pop into my head. Oh, and things okay. that we can't have on race cars. The breakfast of champions that you had when you were here, writing that wonderful story about Jules Villeneuve. <laughs> Jules Villeneuve. <laughs> Jules Villeneuve. It's been a long time. Yes, you did. You saw me. You saw the creative work. I did. And process, then, didn't you? You watched. A week in awe. A week and a half later, there I was reading. Yes. Well, uh. Chiseled away on my stone tablet. Moses has got, has got nothing on me, I'll tell you. <laughs> well, um, I'm, uh, since you, uh, since you ask, folks, I'm having a, uh, a good old favourite that uh, JP is. and I have, have had many times at Glenelg, mine, the Step Chinese restaurant. Um, that's because there were two very, very small steps that the uh, waiter continued for 10 years to uh, tell us to mind the step, as we didn't fall down, but eventually we would. Well, because because in front of customers. <laughs> we did indeed. <laughs> Scarp and Dome School Block 2004. Uh, geez, there's some great wine in this state that's just not escaping out of here to anywhere else. Isn't it brilliant? It's great. We're getting a lot of old vintages that obviously have just been hanging around and the price isn't obviously going up because, you know, people aren't buying. So uh, it's all suddenly come out to play. It's wonderful. Uh, and in fact, uh, when I uh, picked up this little uh, gem this afternoon, there was the bin end, and poking right at the top was none other than a uh, uh, a cirame red, which, to which I picked it up and said, mate, uh, what's that worth? And he went, oh, I've got no idea, so I scanned it, and it was $4.16. <laughs> and I said, jeez, is it okay for shanks? And he goes, probably not, that's Queensland wine. So, <laughs> so, so, so the Morrises will be making lots of money out of that. <laughs> Let's look forward to a brand new car. But it's all relative, isn't it, uh, folks? You know, if you don't know what good wine is, you really don't know the difference. If you enjoy it, great wine. That's exactly. Right. It doesn't have to be posh. And Ceramay wine is pretty good, actually. I've actually been to the Morrises winery up there in Mount Cotton in uh, Queensland, and uh, very impressive setup. I uh, understand Michael Schumacher went there a few years ago to load himself up with some product. Really? Yes, and uh, I think that any winery um, probably has a premium product and uh, will offload, you know, the, you know, the, the low-end stuff. I think all wine's good enough for shanks. I don't know about all this stuff that people say. If you can't drink it, you can't drown the shanks in it. That's a bit, that's a bit harsh. I mean, where does that leave you with Grange? That's right. <laughs> may have some nice cab savs and a particularly a limited edition one that they put out under, well, the label had uh, Mick Doohan's name on it. He's a friend of the Morrises, you know, the five-time world motorcycle champion. And apparently that's quite a, a spectacular drop. Very yeah. good. As is Grange. I've never actually tried Grange. I have a bottle sitting in its wooden box in my wine storage area that I was given a couple oh, of years ago. so the next time we're over then? In the WSA? <laughs> Probably not. I didn't know. Have you got a WSA? What is a WSA, John? Wine storage area. <laughs> oh, yes, I do have a wine storage area. <laughs> That'll be it's a very, there. very, very small cellar that's not quite underground, so I suppose it's not a cellar, is it? <laughs> it's a cupboard in the bedroom, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? Yeah, otherwise known as the bottom of the pantry. Exactly. <laughs> okay, well, that's, well, that's good Thanks enough. for telling us where the little gem is. <laughs> sucked in. Uh, what are you having, Porcupine? It's oh, worth some hundreds of dollars, apparently. Oh, absolutely. I've got the 86 vintage I seem to recall. I think it's probably time you drank it then, but oh, I think 300 to go. Yeah. In fact, seriously, 1986 Hill of Grace, which is probably the other premium wine that goes uh, 
uh, well, welcome to the wine show, by the way, um, <laughs> is um, uh, due for maturing in 2010. If it was a magnum, it would go on a little bit longer. So I think that you probably need to consult the uh, gold book at your best uh, uh, wine uh, retailer and just check because I reckon it, it, she's, on, she's just about uh, on the use-by date. And uh, do you think? Yeah, I think it's definitely the definitely one to be chucked down yeah. down there. Okay. Get the best out of it. Yeah, I've got a uh, one of Glenn Cooper's finest here, just a Cooper's Lager tonight, which is very pleasant, going down well after a long day. Well, uh, recapping, mate. Uh, after we saw you, um, I jetted off to uh, 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 Melbourne also, but I didn't run into you. Uh, and. Uh, <laughs> Really? Yes, I did. It was a pity we didn't see any of you. Or, or, or <laughs> can't go into that too much. But um, maybe you can uh, tell us a bit more about uh, how the Australian Grand Prix went from your point of view. Well, it was a, an uplifting result, I think, is the best way to describe it. I mean, it's become a cliche now, but the victory by the Braun GP team was a fairy tale. That team was uh, on death's door earlier this year, and in fact, just until a few weeks before the Grand Prix. There was no certainty whatsoever, but Ross Braun, the team principal, led a management takeover. And um, how's Richard Branson's luck? They finally convinced him to get involved with a minor sponsorship for the Australian Grand Prix. And uh, Jensen Button uh, wins first up for the Braun Grand Prix team. And, of course, they went on to make it two in a row in the Malaysian Grand Prix. So that was uplifting. I've always liked Jensen Button ever since... He joined Formula One in 2000, got to know him over the years, and uh, I've always rated him highly as a, as a driver. He's just been, well, always in the wrong place at the wrong time. Poor choices, bad luck. It's hard to know which one, but certainly um, until this Braun rocket ship came along, his talent was um, badly underutilised. So I was very pleased from that point of view, and it's not, a, not often I get sentimental about motor racing these days. Um, the atmosphere at the Grand Prix was a bit flat. Crowds were down the lowest since, um, well, the lowest since the, uh, 1997, the, the second year of the event in Melbourne. There you go. Well, I'm sure all the people who still miss the Grand Prix in Adelaide will be cut up about the declining crowds over here. Um, but the atmosphere was flat. They'd taken down, they had a whole lot less grandstand space than previously just because, you know, high-priced ticket sales weren't there. A lot fewer corporate hospitality suites. So a good result but a bit of a flat atmosphere, and um, as usual, the Australian Grand Prix Corporation has a lot of work to do to rebuild the reputation of that event and get Melbourne people, um, Victorians, to love the event because I think Victorians, particularly people in Melbourne, are falling out of love with the event at a great rate of knots. But because it was such an interesting result and this new Formula One season is looking very interesting and unpredictable, maybe... There will be more interest next year, um, and hopefully if the economy improves improves slightly, um, the crowds will start to climb again. But, um, you know, pretty enjoyable weekend, and, uh, oh, the V8s were there, of course, and it was a pretty strong result again for Triple Eight Race Engineering, and Craig Lowndes uh, led a forward sweep of the Manufacturers Challenge. So uh, they are the team to beat once again this season. Mate, have you gone uh, quiet with your microphone? Is it just uh, is it you just away from your mouth? Or? Faded away a bit. 
No, I haven't done I anything. Cool. Well, it's the uh, technical vari- uh, variation. It must be, yeah. yeah it must be a Vagary bit of, is the word that I was looking for, JP. A bit of bandwidth drop or something. Folks, um, with relation to the crowds and everything over there, I mean, does the average Victorian really care that much about the event? I mean, in, in Adelaide here, as we all know, the whole town embraced it and blah, blah, blah. But, under the, uh, but over there, it appears to be just another event. Um, and, and there are so many sporting events in Melbourne. Um, is is it just purely the population? Just like oh well, I you know I'd rather spend my money. It's the start of the footy season, uh, you know. And there, there was huge crowds to the AFL uh, the following week. Um, and there's just not enough money to go around, or or do you think there's other reasons as well? I mean, I the, the costs all... are quite high, aren't they, to get in? I mean, they do appear like the general admission. Entry costs, let alone grandstands, are actually very expensive compared to Clipsal. Oh, indeed. I think just general admission on the Sunday race day was $99, um, which although kids under, I don't know, 14 or 12 got in free if you bought a general admission, um, which could have been good value. I never did get to find out whether your general admission ticket included the Who concert. That was never made clear, and it was hard to find out whether... Just by buying a general admission ticket, you could go along and watch the Who concert, which, by the way, from what I could hear, was not that great. Well, it's I think interesting. they probably should have uh, hung up their instruments a lot earlier. Um, no guitar but- smashing? No, no guitar smashing. I can talk a, bit, a little bit more about that, actually, folks, because I actually went to see the Who on the Thursday night before the Grand Prix when they were here in Adelaide, and it was absolutely a brilliant concert. And if yep. you read the reviews of the gig they did in Western Australia, that was an absolute brilliant concert too, by all accounts. So um, maybe the Grand Prix crowd didn't uh, make give them enough love or whatever, and therefore it went a bit flat. Or maybe just you know they they, they didn't need a venue that size with yeah, you know out in the open air for them. Yeah, yeah because uh, they really were fantastic here. My my other half actually rates it as probably the best concert she's ever seen. So it's interesting oh, I'm glad that you should say that. But I just was wandering around out the back of the Formula One paddock um, after they started and I could hear them. Yeah. Um, and um, they were, you know, doing their signature tune and <laughs> from what I could hear, it just sounds a whole lot better when it's on the beginning of CSI, let me tell you. <laughs> so, but yeah, it could have been the acoustics. You know, it wasn't in a proper stadium. I, I don't know. And I'm, you know, I'm not a... Uh, rock music aficionado to say the least so um, that's just my opinion and if lots of people thought they were fantastic far be it from me to uh, dispute that but getting back to the Grand Prix you're right you know there's just not the love for the race here that there was in Adelaide and that's understandable you know it's a much bigger city here with much more going on Um, but I, I think it's been a PR bungle just from the start they've never sold the race properly the the cost of the race to the you know to the taxpayer is a constant thorn in their side and this year probably it's going to be at least 50 million dollars maybe up to 60 million million dollar loss and in this economy i I don't i think they're going to find it very difficult to justify that so there are another five years uh, another six years in fact to go in the and the existing and the new contract and my view for what it's worth is that the grand prix corporation just really has to get out there along with the victorian government and sell the benefits of this race you know you can argue successfully that although 50 to 60 million would buy you a lot of hospitals or public infrastructure, 
infrastructure, it also buys you a hell of a lot of exposure around the world and it's about selling the Melbourne brand. And if you were to mount a conventional advertising campaign to promote Melbourne, um, the, you know, what I understand is it would cost you a hell of a lot more than $60 million more in the $100 million region. So you can argue from some points um, that it is good value for money, but they just need to really sell it and try and reverse the stigma that the event's taken on in the last, uh, you know, more than a, a decade. Uh, it'll, it would never be as embraced as lovingly as it was in Adelaide because the location slightly outside of the centre of Melbourne is not so intimate. And I guess the brutal reality is that the Grand Prix was by far the biggest thing that ever did and would happen in Adelaide, whereas in Melbourne you have, you know, I don't know, several big world-class events, you know, including the Australian Open Tennis and the Melbourne Cup and the Grand Final. So Melbourne people possibly a little more blasé about it, but not as blasé as people would be in Sydney. They're the most blasé people in Australia up there about events. So, so having said that, without moving off the topic of Melbourne, how do you feel the, uh, the, the Sydney population will embrace the final round of V8 supercars this year at Homebush? That's the big question. That really is a big question. That event's really got to be pushed hard. I think, from what I gather from the early planning, it will be a pretty spectacular event, and I stress event. It won't just be a motor race. They're going to have, um, you know, the ubiquitous entertainment, including some headline act for a big concert. Um, V8 Supercars will be promoting the event themselves, and they'll be uh, really flogging it to death. And they have to because it's the last chance for V8s in Sydney. If this event doesn't take hold and get some enthusiasm for V8 racing in Sydney, which has been a black hole for V8s, you know, for the past several years, yeah. uh, you know, V8s will never take hold in the biggest market in Australia. So it's a critical race. But I, I think its chances are reasonably good. I think certainly the first event, there'll be a lot of curiosity. And uh, from what I gather, the track around the Olympic Stadium and its environs will be... Uh, Fast and spectacular. Um, some pretty innovative track design work is going on up in Queensland at the moment about this. Mark Scaife is a consultant on the track, and he talks very highly of the of the layout. So, as far as the track goes, it should be uh, should be pretty spectacular. A real street circuit, but one with quite a lot of width. It's going to be an unusually wide street circuit because they've got a lot of road width to play with there, and. Uh, in fact, I believe that the last contracts have just been signed late last week with the New South Wales government to confirm the event, so it's a definite goer, and they've overcome some environmental concerns, and um, I gather that a tremendous amount of work is going into protecting some rare species of frog that lives in the area. Yes, well, this uh, issue with the frog came up uh, about uh, almost 10 years ago when uh, Paul Ryan and I uh, did a recce there for Don Hanos, his organisation for to them to include Sydney as part of the America um, Asia Pacific Le Mans oh. series, but got uh, got quashed due to a rare blue tree frog, or was it green? It might have changed colour by now. But uh, folks, for 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 the layman looking at the track layout, it looks pretty boring. So it's uh, it's very encouraging to for you to say that a lot of effort is going into that, and I suppose the basic diagrams, which pretty much look like a straight followed by a corner um, and, and, around a, and through a roundabout, will, will actually be more exciting than that. And uh, whilst uh, 
for those who don't live in Adelaide and they come down here and see what the Clipsal layout looks like, it, it's, it, it doesn't look that entertaining, you know, when the facility is not in place. But once True. it's there, the whole place looks completely different. And with the... Yeah, apparently the, the layout is deceptive. I was talking to Mark Scaife about it recently and he said there's a lot more, you know, variation. It's not just a flat track. Um, there's rise and falls. And a few years ago, I actually went out to the Homebush Sydney Olympic um, Park precinct and had a look around the then proposed route, which is pretty much what it is now. And, and, and it does look pretty interesting. And um, it could be an awesomely fast track. They've had to put a couple of chicanes in at strategic points because otherwise it would have been blindingly quick. But, um, you know, it's not going to be a mini Bathurst or a mini Nürburgring. Let's not kid ourselves. Um, but it does appear at this stage to have the potential to be more interesting than just a, a flat, boring concrete canyon. But uh, we will see a little uh, in, a, in the next couple of months, and um, I'm hoping to see a bit more about the actual layout of the track because it's all been computer designed, and there are some, um, you know, Wizzo computer graphics and computer projections floating around, which um, I believe I'm going to be shown in a couple of weeks. So I'll potentially have a better gauge um, after I check all that out. Um, just briefly going back to the Australian Grand Prix, um, the, uh, you know, for the layman who has then come along and watched the race and they go, well, who's this Braun Grand Prix? And, you know, and, and, and they don't know anything about the history of Honda. Suddenly they see McLaren nowhere and Ferrari nowhere. Um, they, it, it must be difficult for them to understand what's really gone on there, that in effect the... Braun car, which is a derivative of the Honda engineering operation in uh, in England, had a larger lead time on development than everyone else. Um, how does the how do you think the public sort of sees that, or do they, does it confuse them? Don't think they care. Honestly, the aficionados, the hardcore enthusiasts, know the story how the team has grown out of the remnants of you know, what was the Honda Formula One team. Any difference really between the car and what they were designing as a Honda as the engine? It, they got the Mercedes engine <coughs> as a customer deal, excuse me. Um, but you're right, the car was developed over maybe not 18 months, but certainly over a year because when Ross Braun arrived in late 2007 to head up the operation, um, he already saw that the 2008 Honda Formula One car uh, was going to be a bit of a lead sled. So basically, he put the team's resources into designing the 2009 car, and of course that was designed for a, a raft of rule changes, technical rule changes that really turned the whole aerodynamic model upside down almost and had the, uh, as not only cutting a lot of the downforce out of the previous generation, but also the return of grippy slick tyres. So while McLaren and Ferrari, for example, were fighting for the World Championship right down to the wire last year and all their development and technical expertise was put into keeping their cars, you know, developing them, developing them constantly throughout the season. Honda had the luxury, um, a luxury, luxury which subsequently became Braun Grand Prix, the luxury of de developing a car over a long period of time for the new regulations. And it seems they've stolen a march, along with Williams and Toyota, in that they saw a, a loophole, a, an area of interpretation in the rules, shall we say, where they've... Uh, been able to exploit the rules and to put it very simply uh, Braun, Toyota and Williams just have a, a vastly more efficient rear diffuser which is that big outlet at the back of the car right down the bottom under the gearbox and the wing where all the air is extracted 
and that diffuser is what pretty much generates the largest part of a Formula One car's downforce. So most of the downforce is created there. So if you can come up with a more efficient design and extract more downforce, um, you're going to have an advantage. And they have an advantage along with Toyota and Williams because they were smart enough to recognise um, that potential gain. The other teams were asleep at the wheel. They've been complaining. They protested in Melbourne. The stewards upheld um, the design. They threw out the protest. Now it's going to appeal at the FIA in Paris on April the 14th, but I don't give that appeal much chance of getting up because, well, the stewards have already ruled on the rules. The FIA says that's an interpretation that we accept as legal and also appeals to the FIA have a very poor history of success. Um, before we move on to the Malaysian Grand Prix, I suppose it's uh, you know, and and the the interesting after aftermath of the of the Australian Grand Prix, um, it's probably interesting to, to to point out that that Ross Braun's not just recently on the scene, having had a year sabbatical prior to his engagement with Honda of Formula One, who probably may be kicking themselves somewhat about the the dubious decision. But having said that, you know, the benefit of hindsight um, is uh, you know something one cannot buy. Um, had, a, had, a, had a startling career there with uh, Michael Schumacher, and I think, if, correct me if I'm wrong, folks, but uh, back uh, started his, uh, his Formula One days uh, with uh, with Arrows and uh, Eddie Cheever and Derek Warwick. He did indeed. He was the chief designer back in those days at the Arrows Formula One team. USF and G sponsorship. Yes, yeah. that's right. Derek Warwick and yeah. Eddie Cheever. And he subsequently went on to work with Tom for Tom Walkinshaw on some of the later Jaguar sports cars, the um, XJR14, the purple silk cut car, which was uh, a Formula One car uh, in a dress, really. It was um, almost faster with a full bodywork than a Formula One car of the day. But then he went Tom Walkinshaw to Benetton when Tom Walkinshaw, TWI, took over the engineering responsibilities, and he was there and... Um, was helping to mastermind Michael Schumacher's two victories at Benetton in 94, World Championship victories in 94-95, and then he subsequently joined Schumacher at Ferrari in, I believe it was 97, yeah, and he, you know, he was the mastermind technically in a management sense and also strategically the track behind uh, Schumacher's five World Championships at Ferrari. So Ross Braun was intimately involved in Michael Schumacher's seven record seven world championships. So what you're saying is he doesn't know anything. That's right. He's been very lucky. <laughs> A bit like Richard Branson. Yeah, how lucky was he? Uh, to quote the, uh, the article from uh, Auto Action, and thanks very much, Auto Action, for their prompt delivery of, uh, of the recent magazines, um, full, full excellent coverage of the Malaysian Grand Prix and the Australian Grand Prix. To quote... It was one of those wonderful moments in life, and I fully accept that I am a lucky bastard, having signed uh, the Virgin brand as a uh, partner to Braun GP on the Saturday morning of the Australian Grand Prix to go on to get a one-two victory. So he, he must be uh, he must be uh, a very happy bloke and, yes. and a very jammy bloke. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's kissed on the something by a fairy. They would say. Now you had a bit of a chat with him. What did he have to say? I did, and it was um, quite interesting. He was uh, very pleased after the race. Um, I think he'd be imbibing a bit in the celebratory uh, refreshments. But 
he did admit that he was a lucky bastard, as he said, but he also said he's made a lot of decisions in his life where he's fallen flat on his face. So he was quite realistic about the timing. Um, it's something they've been negotiating for quite a while. And I think ultimately not only will Virgin's, the Virgin Group's sponsorship of Braun Grand Prix increase, and not only visibly, but in terms of the amount of money they're putting into the team, um, probably by the time they get back to Europe. But I think it's on the cards very much that Virgin will take an ownership stake in Braun Grand Prix. Um, that seems to be where their talks are heading, and that's a very exciting development for Formula One because the promotional muscle of Virgin around the world is uh, is really the sort of prime example of how Formula One can be such a a powerful marketing tool on a on a global scale and he's also looking to this involvement and formula one to um i guess publicize um this virgin fuel that his company is working on he's teamed up with a research and development company i think they're based in the united states who've developed this mystery fuel replacement according to branson this fuel could be used in formula one it's a replacement for petrol but he says that both in the production and at the tailpipe, it produces virtually no carbon emissions. And uh, he won't say what the fuel is made from what the fuel is made, except that it's not ethanol or a derivative. Um, but if he has managed to find a petrol replacement that can just slot straight into conventional internal combustion engines and produce minimal um, CO2 emissions, well. <laughs> I think um, he'll only, not only become a very rich man, but he'll uh, go down in history as uh, have, having uh, made a revolutionary change to uh, aid the environment. So we can wait and see whether Formula One embraces um, virgin fuel and whether, in fact, this fuel is real or not. Sounds like he won't be going to any uh, Kuwaiti Christmas parties then. <laughs> he probably won't be the best friend of OPEC, but as I say... He's talking up virgin fuel. Um, he's talking it up big, but he won't say how it's produced or from what it's produced. So until we see some hard facts, and hard facts are hard to come by, I tried to do some research on the web on Google and came up with absolutely nothing except that you know virgin fuel exists and they're working on this magic fuel. So we'll have to wait and see. But that that's the sort of thing, if true, a guy like Brands can bring to Formula One. And that sort of contribution to um, improving technology is what Formula One should be all about. It should be leading the way, in my view, in terms of, you know, real green motoring, not greenwash, but actual environmentally friendly motoring. Formula One can push the boundaries of technology there and really make a big contribution. I think it's great for him to, to come on board uh, with the, uh, the fraternity. And I think it adds an, a new... A level of funk factor that hasn't been in Formula One because I think Richard Branson's a funky sort of dude. Yeah, and, he'll, he'll uh, get and, the interest up. Yeah, that's right. You know. Yeah, but how old is he? He's the world's oldest funky bloke. He's <laughs> got to be over sixty. Well, I mean, whatever. how sad is that? Where are the young Turks, the young revolutionaries? And Formula One is full of geriatrics. The people who run the sport, the people who run the teams, they're all as old as. I mean, it's amazing. When I first started covering Formula One back in the, well, in the early 80s, if you really want to take it back, but certainly, seriously, After in the, the late 80s, all, all the, you know, new blokes were coming in all the time, and the guys who 
you know, like Ron Dennis and Frank Williams, they were still relatively young. You know, even Bernie Eccleston was young back in those days. But now, it really, you know, if you're not over 60, it's just this old man's club. It's very disturbing. That's why, you know, this cost cap idea where new teams can come into the sport from next year if it goes through, if they abide by this 33 million pound, 30 million euro um, spending limit is very exciting because suddenly you might get some young people, by young I mean people in their 30s and 40s, coming up from GP2, etc., and re-infusing Formula One with some young thinking. Yeah, that'd be good. Said oh. the old grump. <laughs> said the said, said the question. <laughs> Well, I think uh, I think he's got plenty of uh, things around him to keep him feeling young, even though he's over sixty, and uh, we're not talking about his check account. Now, just before we go and move on again to he's the control, blondest hair. He's got what? Uh, the blondest hair, platinum almost, and yeah. the whitest teeth. When he smiled, because he's got really big teeth. When he smiled at me, I was almost blinded in the darkness. <laughs> Lucky you're sponsored by Ray Ban. I tell you, sorry, I just had to put that in. I just no, no, fascinated. Absolutely. Now, mate, uh, just before we move on to the, the all the all the, the shit fight that's been going going on, uh, you uh, you you caught up with our good friend uh, Alan Simonson, who just incidentally happened to take a third place at uh, the opening round of the Le Mans twenty four hour uh, Le Mans uh, um, six hour series at uh, Barcelona's Catalonia Raceway uh, last weekend. <laughs> in fact, did very well on hand cooked tyres, which uh, were a bit of an unknown quantity. He almost didn't race because uh, five minutes before he got in the car, someone had stolen his hands device, but uh, managed to find one that he could quickly hook up, and uh, and, that, and that was really good. But uh, he, he was down there in in uh, Melbourne with you and uh, actually put his bum in a, an Aussie racing car and did well enough to actually set the fastest time in in the last race with the third place. And um, you know, considering he hadn't done it, it was a pretty good uh, a sign of an adaptable and versatile race car driver. But I believe you caught up with him down at uh, uh, Nico Halloran's uh, Maranello Motorsport with uh, an intriguing guest. I did indeed. He uh, took up the Aussie Road fraternity because they're uh, devilish little devices to uh, to race hard, as Paul Gover from the Herald Sun found out. And um, so he did well there. Now, he's a very diverse character. You're right. But, yeah, I caught up with him on the Monday evening after the Grand Prix um, <laughs> to complete this interview I've been doing with him, which is stretched over at least two sessions now, and eventually we'll see the light of day in auto action. But he's a, his career is so diverse, he's a, I've dubbed him the GT gun for hire. He's your, your go-to man now to drive anything in the sports car field, really, certainly with a roof on it. And anyway, as you said, I went down to Marinello Motors um, here in Richmond, not far from where I live, to catch him before he's getting on a plane that night to go back to Europe and uh, on to Barcelona, one presumes. And he was sitting there with this quite uh, fetching, quite cumbling, cumbly young lady, and uh, which I didn't think was unusual. You know, Alan's a pretty strapping young bloke, we'd say, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it didn't surprise me, but then he introduced her. He said, I was my friend Susie. She races in the DTM, and suddenly the penny dropped. It was Susie Stoddart. No relation to Paul. She races in the DTM, the German Touring Car Masters, and she's a, not only that, she's a Scottish girl, and she's uh, supported by Mercedes-Benz. She runs in one of the second-level Mercedes-Benz C-Class DTM cars. And um, arguably, she's probably, I don't know if one of the best-known, but certainly 
you know, one of the, the handier female races internationally, and there aren't too many of them. So you could say that, you know, she's, you know, there's Danica Patrick in IndyCar, um, and then who else? No more Kate Legg. So she's next best internationally, I suppose you could argue, although someone, I'm sure someone will dispute that. And locally you've got Leanne Tander. So I thought it was very interesting. So I'm thinking, what the hell are you doing here to myself? Long story short, it turns out that Mercedes-Benz Australia had brought her out because she's a, an AMG ambassador. They had hired the Grand Prix circuit on the Wednesday before the Formula One race to take their top customers and VIPs and a group of media, let them loose on the track in various high-performance Mercedes and AMG Mercedes models, ripping around the track, which is unprecedented. Must have cost Mercedes an absolute bomb, you know, to hire the track for half a day. And she was brought out as one of the chauffeurs, one of the taxi drivers, if you like, to take um, VIPs and media around for hot laps. Well, that's all very well. Could Wouldn't she... you have thought the Mercedes-Benz Australia would have actually made something out of this and would have sort of yeah. drummed up publicity and told people that a top female racing driver from, I don't know, arguably the second best touring car series in the world is actually out here? Did they what? Useless. Absolutely <laughs> right, folks. These folks telling the hard facts. That's it. <laughs> so well, you can, read, you can read more about it in my column in AutoAction this week, but I'm appalled. You know, here Mercedes-Benz are heavily involved in motorsport. You'd think they would have let the motoring and motorsport media know, and you'd think they might have just, you know, tipped the wink to auto action that, oh, by the way, blokes, come out on the Wednesday and meet Susie Stoddard. She's this, you know, yeah. hot racer chick, the DTM damsel. You know, the DTM fast Damsel, oh, very good that's a goodie, yes. Yeah. All right, let's move on to what's going on. Hang on. Oi. Oh, sorry. Oh, you faded away. Yeah, you faded right out I'm now. Faded. Where have you gone? I'm still here. Ah. We're having back with issues, are we? Well, well we may have just had a fading just, issue. Isn't it odd, the, the viewers, that we are, um, yeah. um, we, we're testing this Skype solution and it's just sort of war. Not warbling, but the, no, the, the data right. rate is changing all the time. So suddenly we have a loud folks and then every quiet folks. So sorry, I wasn't trying to talk out the top of you. No, that's okay. I'm sorry that it's variable. That's it. You're you back to normal again now. Back? Yes. I was just going to say that Susie Stoddart would have been a much better celebrity story to be appearing in the papers down here out of this Mercedes-Benz so-called star class than a C-grade so-called celebrity like Naomi Robson. Remember her from today? Well, yeah. not here on the East Coast anyway. You probably didn't get her. Well, I did like, get her, and she was a bit of a hottie too. Yeah, we had her here for a while too on the team. She may well be a hottie, but she's a has-been hottie. Um, <laughs> and, you know, she got her picture in the paper as a celebrity in this Mercedes-Benz exercise, and yet they had a genuinely, you know, proficient female racing driver who's not hard on the eye, I've got to tell you, and there's not a peep out of it. And they, they, apparently they didn't even, Mercedes didn't even tell some of their, or most of their guests there who she was because none of the other media who actually went on this launch or this media jolly at the Grand Prix track mentioned her. And in fact, in some of the websites, you know, like Drive or carsales.com.au, I've looked at their picture file from it and there's pictures of Susie Stoddart standing around and no mention of what she is or who she is. It's just bizarre. Oh, very weird. Okay, let's fast forward to the final lap of uh, the Australian Grand Prix. Yes, and? <laughs> well, yeah, and there was a bit of an issue. 
let's then look back. Let's, let's look back from where we are today, a week after the Malaysian Grand Prix. With Sorry, the I, you're confused. I've got what you mean. Yes, it, it triggered the whole... You're talking about the whole Hamilton, Lewis yeah. Hamilton. Well, here we McLaren. are. Here we are. A week, yeah. la- a week later, a, uh, a, a, the Malaysian Grand Prix has been won with, um, and, and most people would understand this, that uh, that uh, Jensen Button once again has, has taken victory in a, uh, a rain monsoonal shortened event with half points, which is actually quite interesting because we do know of world championships which have been won before over a half point between yes. Prost and Lauda, and um, who knows that may come in come into to play later, but. It's sort of there's a lot to talk about, unfortunately, you know, or fortunately in this in, in, in this show because of what's happened here, and there's a lot of things going on the last few days with uh, McLaren being summoned to the World Motorsport Council, the sporting director Dave Ryan of 34 years of uh, of work at uh, at McLaren fired, um, who started his career there with uh, Emerson uh, Fittipaldi's 1974 winning uh, uh, Grand Prix yep. uh, championship. So um, you're a little bit closer to it to, to mine uh, to, to I am rather, and, and also I'm also I'm I like you. I'm trying to understand exactly where where the problem uh, occurred because the verbal transcript between Dave Ryan and Lewis Hamilton on the final lap of the Australian Grand Prix doesn't really show anything untoward. The whole thing is belief. They actually they being McLean didn't actually do anything wrong. They didn't commit a crime in the first instance in that this whole discussion over truly running off the road and then Hamilton being instructed to let him get back past because um, they were a bit gun-shy after the uh, Spa incident at Spa-Francorchamps last year where Hamilton famously lost his place, lost his result there because of that incident where he shortcut the track after his run-in with Raikkonen. So they came off badly there, so they wanted to make sure there was no problem. But unbelievably, when it came to the stewards hearing, they just withheld this information. They didn't mention that they had instructed Hamilton. Um, And without that information initially, the stewards excluded um, Truly on the basis that he, you know, passed under the yellow or something. Um, for whatever reason, inexplicably, you know, they didn't mention it, so they withheld the truth. It was public knowledge that they'd done this. It was in McLaren's own press release. It was in Lewis Hamilton had mentioned in interviews afterwards. It just, you know, I, I don't understand what they're about. So, in a panic move, because I don't know Dave Ryan well, but I know him well enough over the years. He's a pretty straight guy. Just some sort of panic, told Lewis Hamilton not to say anything about that incident that he'd been following a team instruction. And, you know, inevitably it comes out, and rightly so, the stewards and the FIA have their noses right out of joint. You know, they've been lied to <laughs> unnecessarily, which is the irony. So Dave Ryan is uh, the scapegoat in this. You know, um, I'd be asking the question why Martin Whitmarsh, the new uh, team principal of McLaren, appointed by Ron Dennis himself, Ron Dennis um, stepping back this year, why he's not carrying the can? It seems he would be ultimately responsible. Well, isn't yeah. that isn't that right? I mean, you, you you can't have a bank manager firing a teller for a for an error in transaction, can you? Or, or just I mean, what, what's the, the point of the manager? Not when the teller's doing what the manager told him to do. Exactly. Yeah. 
No. But this, I mean, this is just another ins incident in a disturbingly growing number with McLaren, you know, which are always out there trying to promote the fact or pushing very hard the fact that, you know, they're a team that, you know, is ruled by integrity and, you know, ultra-professionalism and getting everything right and, you know, high expectations and pushing themselves to per perfection, when, in fact, their record since 2000 has been pretty, pretty ordinary. They've thrown away at least two world championships that I can think of. They got caught up in the Spygate scandal and were caught out, you know, not telling the whole truth in that incident. And although he's a bit of a spoiled brat, their treatment of Fernando Alonso in 2007 um, was pretty appalling. And now we've got this latest incident. So I'm just over McLaren. Honestly, I just think they are hypocrites. I really do. You think they've truly lost it now? I mean, they have certainly, their integrity's down the toilet. There's no <laughs> doubt about that. And uh, I don't know whether that's going to um, upset a lot, of, particularly the Pommy fans uh, who stood by them. Um, they must be going, well, what the bloody hell's going on down there, you know? So, yeah, interesting but stuff. They deserve every bit of criticism that they get over this, particularly as it was just plain stupid. Mm. You know, you shouldn't tell lies in the first place. But if you're going to tell them, at least tell them intelligently and cover your tracks. <laughs> yeah, you know, right. just, you know, they deserve to get the book thrown at them. And I think the FIA World Motorsport Council will throw the book at them, you know, just for absolute stupidity and the, the arrogance of the whole operation. And, you know, there's, they're individually excellent people in that organisation, but as a group, they've almost become dysfunctional. And if I were Lewis Hamilton, I mean, what must he be thinking? They put him in a dreadful position... Absolutely. He had to make a, you know, a very heartfelt and um, laborious public apology, and you could see he was very cut up about it. And uh, and I think it was a gutsy move by him to apologise so publicly and so profusely. I wouldn't mind betting that he has, he would have reason now to turn around and say, "Well, you guys are in breach of my contract with you. I'm off." Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. morals, morals clauses go both ways. Well, so, his father, his father was extremely outraged by that, and and, and I would suggest, yeah, that that's definitely uh, on the cards. Moving on to something a little bit lighter than that, uh, the um, the media uh, or the, the media engine at uh, Toro Rosso has um, been having a few uh, laughs with a few of the people with the uh, um, credentials like yourselves, folks, but. Uh, Perhaps they're all just like crocodiles snapping for a story trying to get it to their media outlet. Uh, after the uh, debacle, let's say, from a media point of view, of, uh, of uh, Sebastian Boomy. Boomy, is my spelling, am I saying that right? Boomy. 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 Uh, being, um, being castigated by the Australian customers. Thank you. Uh, for uh, his Toblerone uh, selection, which is obviously the rubbish being confiscated at the, at the Melbourne airport, of which someone bothered to uh, actually print. Um, they moved on to Malaysia, where, being April Fool's Day and people were off the ball, <laughs> they, uh, they failed to, uh, to, to work out that when uh, Toro Rosso uh, put out a story, and, and I'm reading this thanks to autosport.com, um, that... Uh, <clears throat> they were going to, in fact, uh, bring the KERS uh, energy, uh, kinetic energy recovery system, KERS, um, into into use for a, a driver cooling aid. Um, to quote, 
we are indebted to Professor Hugh Masterby Jerkin of <laughs> Imperial <laughs> College London for his department assistance in moving this project forward so quickly, commented Wayne Kerr, Toro's <laughs> head of Kerr's. Now, even if they didn't get that together phonetically, they would have thought, isn't that funny that the boss of Kerr's name's Kerr? Well, the team was racing in Melbourne. We came directly to Koala Lumpur to evaluate the system in real-time conditions, and we were given invaluable help by the thermal energy faculty of Koala Lumpur Polytechnic, particularly the head of the department, one Dr. Cooling Ning Fan. But if the names didn't uh, sort of make them suss it out, I think they're really off the ball. Um, the, the local newspaper ran a story saying Toro Rosso getting invaluable help from the local tech authority. <laughs> and then Puma, their clothing supplier, went, why didn't you tell, about, tell us about the new, new logo we need to put on the race suit? I mean, although I can't wait till the next race <laughs> in China. It's interesting that the guy who's the uh, head of communications, the media manager of Toro Rosso, which is part of the Red Bull group, of course, is a British guy by the name of Eric Silverman, who's been around a long time. I first met him over 20 years ago when he was the PR guy for Honda F1. And he has a very keen sense of humour, um, almost an Aussie sense of humour. And uh, <laughs> Red Bull like the idea of pre- presenting a fun image. And he often puts out all these press releases have some element of humour to them. But um, every so often they put out some real pearlers and the one of making, you know, claiming that Buemi had his 300 bars of Toblerone um, confiscated by customs when he arrived in Melbourne and some other stuff and a $300 taxi ride. You know, you've got to take, you know, one journalist in a press conference actually asked him about it. So they're very persuasive. And this new one, which is clearly an April Fool's joke, was uh, another one of Eric Silverman's um, masterful, masterful pieces of comedy, which uh, I've got to say, a few and far between in the in the uh, almost clinical environment of the Formula One paddock, so it's to be applauded. But uh, it is amazing, you know, how um, humorous stunts like that can actually suck in. I mean, conversely, <laughs> if, we, if we were in China, you know, we, we wouldn't know whether that was a real story or not. We just know how much it costs to get from Melbourne Airport to the circuit. So we've got a frame of reference. Um, yeah, Malaysian Grand Prix, mate. See uh, a, person, a certain person by the name of Wan King coming into play for the Chinese Grand Prix in a Red Bull press release or a Toro Rosso press release, can't you? Yes, I can see that, yeah, yeah. So uh, before we go on to uh, Supercar News, which I'm sure you've got a bit of about, um, uh, mate, just... Your, your oh, did you have to go and spoil my evening? Oh, <laughs> well, come, on. come on, you are the king of the, king, yet... the, king of the ADC. We're not, we're not cutting your grass on that. Malaysian Grand Prix, what do you think? Because, mate, you're doing all the talking, not we love all this. This, this is great. Yes, totally. It's great, folks. Have you yeah. had your tipple yet? Oh, by the way, you, the dog... Are you actually there, JP, or yeah, yeah, just a I holiday? Yeah, yeah. No, he's actually here. He's next to the dogs, who at this moment is just a mere fluffy ear on a bed That's of right. the Radio Hot Lap World Headquarter table. Oh. Uh, it's a bit like Thunderbirds, you know, <laughs> but, uh, you know, international rescue. Yeah. As opposed to international poor. Um, no, I haven't had a chance to go and get my tipple yet because you keep asking me questions. Would you like to have a tipple? Do you, you think you could just talk amongst yourselves yeah, for a little yeah, while? You go, tippling. You go tippling. And, and guess yeah. what, folks, because this is the bit you like. It's tech time. We'll talk That's tech and you go yeah. tipple. God, let him down. Well, I won't hear all the good tech news. Tipple. Tipple. He loves to talk, though. He does. Yeah. I mean, is it? It's whose show is 
you involved in loves it. Loves it. Well, <clears throat> John, I love to talk as much as you love to. Oops, censored. Uh, 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 you're still there. Go and go and tipple. Wait, uh, okay. Overnight, Apple uh, in their professional services range upgraded the X serve. Yes. Uh, we're taking the Intel Nahalem processors, which are, in fact, dropping down the megahertzism of the yes. machine and now providing twice the performance. Um, uh, than the, than the previous model for the same price, and that, that, that's pretty bloody good. Uh, and, and on top of that, a two terabyte time capsule. It yes. hasn't hit the markets yet, but uh, it, the boxes have been showing up, so that'll be that'll be clever, working well with those sort of things in distributed environments. And I thought, that, that that's interesting stuff. Well, that'd be good. Have you got your time capsule working yet? No, I haven't. Right, well, okay. Well, so we've got a two terabyte version of something that you haven't been able to get to work. Well, um, actually, does that to be fair? Realistically, though. I've, I've done a firmware upgrade on it the right. last day or so. so I haven't. No, I don't uh-huh. know. I've been, uh-huh. You see, the thing is, I don't know if it's working because I haven't lost anything. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, sort of, it's the most annoying device. <laughs> it's, like, it's like insurance I don't want. Yeah. <laughs> it's an insurance policy you have to have. <laughs> Okay, now I can tell you that the most interesting thing to come up this week yep. is uh, Skype. Skype for iPhone. Skype for iPhone. Absolutely. Now, it only is working over Wi-Fi. Um, and, and I suppose it, it actually, the engine did work over the wireless, the, the phone network. But, of course, once you did that, well, you were going to negate any cost of, of phone calls, right. weren't you? Exactly. So where, where it is useful is if you're on a Wi-Fi connection overseas yes. and you want to make international phone calls. Well, funny you should say that. Because I had a phone call today for some tech support from none other than the aforementioned international Paulie, who using Skype on his iPhone. Who over the, from the previous weekend um, had uh, taken out to victory at uh, the second round of the American Le Mans series at St. Pete with um, um, Scott Sharp and David Brabham aboard the Acura. Acura, that's it. Is he there? His folks backwards. Acura. <laughs> Now, listen, when we say Acura, you tell us it's a Cura. When we say a Cura, you tell us it's the Acura. 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 The O or Acura? Acura, as in accurate. Right. It's a play on it. It's so accurate. It's accurate without the T. Ac- but mine, a bit of a poverty field, only 17 cars and two in P1. Right, you know, P1 but anyway, international will talk that up. Paulie was quite buoyant about the, oh, the way yeah, everything was going. Yeah, he chatted to me this afternoon. I don't speak to anymore. It was a tech support call, but we turned, we had a good chat at the same time. I saw his wife. He told yeah. him his wife looked fat. <laughs> She's pregnant, you idiot. Oh, right. <laughs> well, that'll explain it. <laughs> Look, more interestingly, even more, more, more than more interestingly, right. is that the... When um, Apple released their 3.0 developer iPhone kit yes. to, to key developers and then have done another revision, there's all these things that people are finding that weren't actually explained, sort of hidden into it. And people are digging down and finding that the new iPhone is going to probably have a 3.2 megapixel camera, which is capable of video upload probably to, you know, me.com or to YouTube. YouTube, yep. Which you which would make a lot of sense. Also, it's going to include uh, what's called a, a magnetometer. Magnetometer. Magneto. Magnetometer. No, oh, well, okay, so okay. it's different from an accelerometer, which right. is a two-axis device, which allows right. you to be able to determine whether it's vertical, like as in uh, uh, portrait or landscape, yeah. horizontal. This uh, device, the magnetometer, whatever. Magnetometer. It, it, it's a three-axis device, which then provides a complete compass-style solution. Now, where would you use something like that? Well, the, the, the clever thing about the three-axis device is that it shows absolute direction of where the iPhone is pointing, despite 
the vertical plane that it's sitting on. So even if it's in your pocket, yeah. it knows where the front of the device is. So if you are looking at a building, mm-hmm. it could then actually identify the building through probably some engines like Google Street View. Right. It would bring the image up, but it then could overlay text information on top of it saying, okay, this is the uh, uh, the uh, the building in Wall Street where Bernard lost most money for everybody. <laughs> um, it could also be useful perhaps if you were to point it at the sky and it could uh, determine a constellation because Wouldn't it is using a three-dimensional, uh, a three-dimensional axis. Other little, the, so you think it would be good for people climbing Everest? Well, I don't think it will help them get up there. Well, no, but they might get know where they are. What, what, do you think they've got time to take them off? Take the, the goggles off and have a look at them? That's a Possibly. stupid thing to say. Okay. Stupid. That sounds completely useless unless you're... <laughs> I love the I don't know. I can't think of who would want to use that. It's just overkill. Perhaps I'm in a, a foreign land and I know where I'm meant to be going, but I don't know the building. I point my device at it and it comes back and says, yes, this is, this is the uh, home of Dallara, the most understated uh, chassis builder in the world. Oh, and you would just happen to be standing outside of Delara? No, but I happen to be looking for Delara because I don't really... Yeah. Well, that's what your sat-nav is for. Yeah, but it's... Yeah. Yeah, I'll get back to you on that. Yeah, <laughs> so are we going to have to buy a new iPhone soon? Yes, there will be a new iPhone coming up soon, folks. And uh, thanks But you that. will be able to update your old one, folks, so you'll be fine. Oh, it would be a firmware upgrade. Yes. Another little nicety, which is also not good for you, JP, in terms of third-party products, is that they are now including the ability to not only receive FM transmissions, but to transmit them. And that means the transmission could mean being able to connect from your iPhone, playing FM radio to your local stereo system wirelessly without having to have a third-party device plugged in to to, to, uh, access that transmission. Currently... The, um, the Broadcom trip chip, the BCM4329, it supports 802.11, and it uh, is only being used by one manufacturer, and that is Nike, mm. for their Nike Plus solution to receive data from the shoes. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it, it's, it's, opening it, it's opening up, and with iTunes 8.11, a little minor bug fix and a little functionality change coming up, I think that... There's a, there's a big shift here with Apple technology to the iPhone platform, I think, that you're going to see that all the computers, as, as large as they might be, are all going to be run from the iPhone. I think we're going to see remote desktop control of, uh, of, of servers yeah. completely Well, even uh, just uh, your home computer from your iPhone, which has been on the cards, I suppose, for quite a while. Not that it will uh, be bothering uh, folks because he's still stuck in, um, what's that land called? PC land, is it? Windows then? Yeah. The uh, only anyway. Nokia with their 6220. That's the only other phone around which has a three-axis 6220 or 6210? Oh, 6210. That's quite true. You, you did know all about that. You've been knowing I a knew a bit about it, John. I thought I said that. Dirty boys. Dirty boys. Geeks. Sorry, folks. Hey, geekies. Oh, yeah. Okay. Out. We'll, we'll slow the propellers down. Have you gone down to sell it, have you? We love our geek. Yeah. Good, you'll be on web forums any moment. How is Chris? <laughs> you liked him. He was a nice forum person, wasn't he? He was. Don't think much of some of his... Um, Constituents? Forumers. Forumers, yeah. 
Still haven't forgotten that. Now, why were we keeping you here? There was a reason. We were going to talk about V8s. Did you want to know what my tipple is? Oh, yeah, what's the tipple? Yeah, absolutely. Well, actually, the cupboard's a bit bare. Well, there are lots of unopened You haven't opened that Grange, have you? No. (laughs) No, but I thought it's a special occasion. You know, my mates from Hot Lab. Water. I would open a... Wins Coonawarra Estate, John Riddick, limited release, Coonawarra Cab Sav, oh, 2005 vintage. Very nice. nice. Very, very nice. nice. Yeah. Fuck you. Very smooth. We wish we were there sharing it with you. I'll say. One with the red stripe, eh? No, 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 no. It's a special John Riddick it's limited edition. Riddick? Got a, Ooh, a, this is upmarket oh, stuff here. Oh, yeah. 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 Do Mar- tell. A plum coloured label. And is it as nice as it sounds, folks? Very smooth. It goes down very well. Oh, well, that's good to hear. Probably a bit too early to open it, actually. It's only, it's only a 2005, but it's never bad. But Just keep swirling that glass to get the air in there. You'll be fine. I have, I've got, a, I've got a very big red wine glass here. It's almost like a jug, tumbler. <laughs> Folks, it's got a big red wine glass. Can you believe that? <laughs> we're, all, <laughs> mate, we're, all, we're all class here. Don't you worry. <laughs> BRW, eh? Yeah. BRWG. What's that? Big red wine glass. <laughs> you are. Oh, you do fall in Don't you get any acronyms? <laughs> they're well, they're not an acronym. acronym. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. Gonna... An acronym <laughs> has to form a word like radar or scuba. It's just, it's not just random initials. <laughs> All right. <sighs> F-H. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> right, so, do you want I to should do, have, been, you want should to have do, been an English do, teacher, shouldn't do, I? Do you want to do the rap on Mas- uh, Monsoon GP or, uh, or V8s or both? I can do a bit of both. I mean, it was obvious to see if you watched the Malaysian Grand Prix that it was just too much water for the cars to cope, which is one of the great ironies, but it is actually true. The safety car is able to lap quicker than the cars in those torrential, tradi- torrential conditions, and... It does seem bizarre that, you know, a Formula One car, if it's wet and slippery, you just drive it slowly, you would have thought, like on the road, but they are just unmanageable pigs and there's so much water on the track that they're actually slower than a road car, so even though it looks bizarre, um, the drivers out there are actually struggling, even on full wets, to keep the car on the, on the track, so they had to call the race, it was a disappointment, and there's been a lot of discussion about, well, they should have held the race start at 4 p.m. their time instead of 5. But at this time of year and at that time of the afternoon, it can rain any time. You know, a monsoonal downpour is just a risk of running the Malaysian Grand Prix at this time of the year, and it's been going on for over a decade now, so it's no surprise. Well, I mean, the tropics the tropics, and that time of night, you, you're you up for a downpour in nine times out of ten, so, you know, it doesn't matter exactly. where it is. So... Even holding the race at 2 p.m., a traditional start, you know, you're just as likely. In fact, last Sunday it did rain very heavily at around 2 o'clock, so they can't win. Um, they're just going to have to juggle with it and live with it. And I, The simpleton in me just says, well, you could improve the drainage of the track. That might help. I have so they're dumped down. It just, it, you know, somehow drains away quickly. 
I have to say that sitting down at half past six on a uh, on a Sunday, Sunday night, night with yeah. a uh, with a roast chicken dinner in front of me to watch a Grand Prix <laughs> was was something that you really you, you either yeah, do you that in do Europe or America exactly. or it's something the sort of like thing that. You do yeah. on a Sunday well, in England, America, you, know? you do it for breakfast, but yeah. not <laughs> roast chickens. But but like well, it was really really pleasant, wasn't it? <laughs> it was it's just like night. you weren't feeling yeah. like you were losing your afternoon, and it was sort of it was it, really, it brought the whole family. No, kudos to One uh, HD. Yes, They're going to do all the Formula One races. Finally, we get them live, live, no delay. So even the European races will be at a sensible hour. They did a uh, network ten, yes. of which One HD is. One HD, yeah. It's the high definition sports, all sports channel. They did a few races late last year, live, live, and it made a big difference. You know, sitting down to watch it at nine thirty or ten p.m. And getting to bed before midnight doesn't ruin your day. No. Particularly for, you know, most normal people have to get up and go to work. And from my point of view, auto action's uh, manic deadline day is a Monday. So, you know, being up till 2 a.m. and have to, you know, get up early again was always a bit of a pain. And invariably, I fell asleep during the race anyway and woke up just as the national anthem for the winner was being played. Thanks. <laughs> but being able to watch it on HD, 1 HD live, um, with a pre-race show if you want to, yeah, I thought that was pretty good. I, you know, look, I think look, it's that, great. They're supposed to be doing all the miles too. Yeah, but you can if you you've got to tolerate the inane chatter and banter that goes on. Uh, is uh, Diffy was just down for a one-off? He had a weekend off speed, did he? Yes, apparently so. Yeah, right. And he was up there with the national. We got, we got to uh, hear. Well, you you would have watched over in Adelaide, but I was at the track. I didn't hear it. But I got it was the first chance to hear the new BBC commentary team: Jonathan Ledyard with Martin Brundle and. Um, assorted other heads, including David Coulthard and Eddie Jordan. It was kind of interesting. Probably actually didn't sound a lot different from James Allen and Martin Brundle, to be honest. No, but it, didn't. I think it, it didn't, and nor did they bother to really point out like who that commentary team was. So it, 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 it really didn't, didn't, didn't sound any different. Um, I, would have, I would imagine that it would have been uh, difficult for the Japanese audience, uh, though. Uh, in fact, if you were to cast your mind back too many years ago, when uh, Martin Brundle and Mark Blundell drove the Brabham team, in the Brabham team, with Epson sponsorship, how difficult would that have been for the Japanese commentator? Belly. Belly. <laughs> Blundell, Rob Brundle. It's fucking terrible. But as I said, kudos to 1HD for... Doing that, it's going to make life a lot easier. It'll be a very interesting Formula One season, one way or another, coming up. So I think it'll be worth um, watching these races um, as they happen properly live. And um, in uh, high def, if you've got the really trick uh, flat screen TV. Absolutely. Well, mate, uh, thanks for uh, joining the show tonight. Uh, What about the Wii 8s? Oh, yeah, the Wii 8s. The 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 big news, folks, is there big news re-qualifying? There is indeed, JP. How perceptive of you. You're wide in, aren't you, mate? Oh, well, I just had a whisper that there may be yeah. some qualifying news, and I thought you'd be the person to know. I was just hankering for Chinese. <laughs> well, Chinese is later. No, no, I'll just... Quick summary. Um, after the uproar, after the Clipsal 500, uh, over the single qualifying session for both races, which are now standalone individual rounds, of course... Um, despite V8 Supercars boss Cameron Levick after the fact saying, no, we are absolutely not going to review this until um, the end of May. 
um, they've turned around and the uproar's been such that they've now changed the qualifying system in the sense that they've now added a second qualifying session on the Sunday morning and that will decide the grid for the second race, the second round of the weekend. So when we go to Hamilton next weekend, there will be qualifying sessions culminating in the top 10 shootout for race one. Yeah. And then the next day, there will be a 20-minute session on Sunday morning to decide the grid for the second race. So this overcomes the uh, outrage over the fact that people who did who qualified poorly and then did well in the first race were then subsequently penalised because they went back to their grid position or vice versa. Now, what people missed in that argument was, well, the whole point of this system was that now each race is an individual round. So you mm. really can't have the result of race one affecting the result of race two because they're, not, they're no longer interlinked. But um, the perception was bad, so they had to change it. Good on them. They actually did something, had an emergency board meeting, uh, VA Supercar board teleconference, and uh, they changed it. So we've now got one different kinds of qualifying, but we have, now have qualifying session for race one and a separate qualifying session for race two. In other V8 news coming up, VA Supercars has now issued information on the new soft option, soft compound, soft compound option tyre that will be used at six events this year, starting with Winton early next month. And teams have to use, they get allocated um, one set of uh, sticky Dunlop control tyres and they have to use that set, all four tyres, at least once over that weekend. So in one of the two races or both, they have to opt for this soft tyre. The idea of bringing in this uh, soft compound option is to try and liven up the racing as ever. It can lap at Winton in testing. On a light fuel load, the soft compound tyre was up to three seconds, three and a half seconds quicker than the standard hard tyre. Um, heavy fuel load, it's about one, one and a half seconds quicker, but it degrades very quickly. So after about 30 laps, it's shot, the soft tyres, and so it will be slower. There's a, pit stop so there's a lot of strategy going to be involved in, you know, when you use your soft tyre during the meeting, at what stage and what race do you start on it with, you know, a heavy load and swap to the hard with with a light load or vice versa. You know, there are lots of permutations. Mm. And the other thing that they're trying to introduce is from Winton, which is the first weekend of May, is to force a de facto compulsory fuel stop in that, at least in that first 100-kilometre race, the new sprint race, Sprint event format is a 100-kilometre race on the Saturday, a 200-kilometre race on the Sunday. They're going to restrict the tank capacity of the cars to 80 litres. That's what they're planning to do. So it'll force the teams to make a fuel stop along with a tyre stop in that 100-kilometre race and then probably two stops in the 200-kilometre events. Teams are up in arms over it, even though they originally agreed to this idea. They're now jacking up and saying, no, it costs too much money. It's unnecessary. All they need is to say we have to make a compulsory tyre stop at some stage that would achieve, achieve the same effect. But the teams are jacking up against this. Um, VA supercars say it can be relatively cheap to convert your fuel tank by putting in what they call um, uh, capacity blockers. They're restrictors you put in the tank that just displace the fuel and um, fill up the area that the extra 40 litres um, in the tank 
uh, where it would have been because the tanks at the moment are 120 litres. Or How you can go and buy them, folks. Are they inflatable? Uh, no, they're made of polyethylene. They're just blocks. But how do you, once you put them in, how do you take them out? Uh, you open the fuel cell somehow. Geez, that sounds expensive. It does, yeah. Can do it. Well, via supercars, so it can be as cheap as 500 bucks to do that. Um, there are some concerns over, you know, the safety issues and whether it's actually, you know, the FIA would approve of this. But um, the alternative is V8 Supercars has ordered 30 new control fuel cells um, that they'll sell to the teams for about 2200 2500 bucks each. But that's, you know, like five grand up front anyway. And then because for Phillip Island Bathurst, the teams can go back to using their 120-litre tank. So... But JP's idea of they're inflatable doesn't sound too, too silly because <laughs> aluminium tanks, who's going to want to put a welding device anywhere near something where there's been fuel? Um, and, and, of course, the, the, the structural integrity would have been compromised. So maybe you're onto something. Yeah, well, I, I'm not an expert on this, but you, you can op- they're fuel cells more than tanks, and you can, sure. you, you can open them up without ripping them apart. I don't understand it fully. And, and, I, and, I, in other words, I, they're, they're bladders within a container yeah. which oh, yeah. can be open and sealed and then get right. Yeah, so okay. they, yeah, they don't have to go cutting and shutting. Um, there's a bit of work and repackaging and all that. The bottom line of all this, I mean, you know, is that the team say it's going to cost too much whichever way you do it, and it's unnecessary. So we're going to have to see in the next <coughs> month or so whether V8 Supercars goes ahead with this restriction or they just let it go and say, look, you know, stop for tyres, we're happy. Um, the other thought they had was that because they have a control fuel rig, they could have just, you know, had a set allocation of fuel for the start of the race to make sure the cars can't get through, which is debatable anyway. Most people seem to think that over a 100k race, you'd be on fumes near the end of it if you could make it that far. Some teams say they can go further, we don't know. That was not on the head. It's good to see that, uh, folks, that you're going back to the olden days of um, you know, where would you hide your cooler bar? Because <laughs> well, that's had... what I was just thinking was, well, why don't they just recycle a few 20-litre wine casks? And, you know, you can have four of them for a, a sprint race and, and eight of them for a, for a long race or a barbecue. Yeah. I might tend to agree with you being a simple person at heart, but there are lots of issues, probably none the least of which is occupational health and safety, OH&S, which is not an acronym. We're too old to remember that stuff, Pope. You're drinking the bottle of wine on your own. (laughs) (laughs) I am. How sad am I? Uh, (laughs) Come come over to Melbourne. Next time we'll do it here in beautiful Melbourne. No worries. (laughs) All of you. Everyone's invited. Okay, we'll all go. (laughs) All the viewers too. Well, um... Thank you, Tom. Anything else to add? Why don't we just ring up the viewers individually? Wouldn't that be quicker and easier? Yeah, we're, 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 we're one hour fourteen. They'll, they'll be bored with us. They will. They'll be going. To go. Where are they going to bloody finish yeah, and go yeah. and eat Chinese? That's right, because they love eating Chinese. You do that. We have a very, we have a huge international audience, don't we? We, we do. do. And in fact, well, like, we don't know exactly how international they are, but we have a huge audience, and that's the important factor, and uh, probably only larger tonight due to your um, uh, very, very interesting comments. And in fact, JP, you know, I was thinking perhaps we should resurrect the um, our, our previous podcast of um, aphids, waste spokes and, and garden snail show. Because Faves has done all the talking for an hour. <laughs> We've had 15 minutes of interjection. We have. Uh, it's and, been good. And, and, and sipping a few, a few mm. wines and beers. So 
why don't we just hand off radio and I'll have to win at a price, of course. Oh, well, of and, course, and, yeah. and, and we'll go back to the gardening show. Yeah. Well, there you go. Oh, we could just go back straight to barbecues. You, you don't know anything about gardening, do you? Well, we could say you've just been listening to or you've just missed Radio Hot Fogs. Good night, viewers. Uh, yeah, thanks, <laughs> Good night, folks. Good night, folks. Cheers, mate. <laughs> Good night. Good on you guys. Cheers, folks. so typical of you taking over the show. Thank you.